You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, Season 2, Episode 36. I am indeed Teller, and this is indeed Jerusalem. We welcome our listeners, wherever you may be, as we resume our regularly scheduled program of detailing the early struggle to build the state of Israel. Our every fourth episode is the ever-popular character installment. So we leave Harvot Barzel, Operation Swords of Iron, and return to 1948, the year that the state of Israel was founded, which, of course, Hamas could never accept. What can be best explained as nothing short of a miracle, Israel won her War of Independence, firstly in the Civil War phase, by defeating the Arabs that vastly outnumbered the Jews. Even more miraculous was the next stage. Independent of the manifest miracle, there were four components that contributed to the miracle. A. Those in Israel were committed to the state and to each other. There was a compelling sense of Achshav o la'olam lo. The opportunity was now. And if it's not taken immediately, then just as easily, it could be lost. When the war had started, there were only 30,000 Jewish troops. And when it had ended, there were 110,000. The Arab armies could not keep pace, nor could the Arab countries. The Arab countries numbered in population 40 million, which vastly super-vastly outnumbered the Jews, but the tens of millions could not comprise a united force that would ultimately be able to capture Israel. Israel had to manage without sufficient arms. In earlier episodes, we have detailed how there was an embargo on allowing arms into Israel, and how Israel had managed to make a secret bullet factory underground in a kibbutz. Fagana also took advantage of an airfield that had just been abandoned by the British in their preparations for departure. The airfield was made operational for a single night, or more accurately, for a matter of minutes. The DC-4 cargo plane located the airstrip thanks to Israelis lighting up with electrical flashes for just enough time for the plane to land. On board were 200 rifles, 40 machine guns, 150,000 rounds of rifle and machine gun ammunition that were quickly dispersed and hidden in nearby settlements. The plane quickly turned around, was refueled, and took off. Rumors spread that a plane had landed, and the next morning British officers came to inspect, but could not find a thing. How did Hunter Hayes put it? The next day, a Yugoslav cargo ship docked at Tel Aviv. Right beneath the eyes of the British officers, Jewish stock workers unloaded significant caches of weapons. Amid the potatoes and onions were also 500 rifles, 200 machine guns, more than 5 million rounds of ammunition.
With this ammunition, Haganah forces again attempted to break the stranglehold on Jerusalem. Initially, a specially trained unit of the Haganah was able to capture the Arab town of Castel that overlooked over the highway, a rather august term for a two-lane road, one lane in each direction, to Jerusalem. The Czech weapons were put to their first test in their assault on the mountain fortress of Castel. During the vicious fighting, as Howard Sacha reports, the most celebrated Arab military commander, Abd el Qadr Husseini, telephoned a rival Arab leader, Fozi al Kouchki, for arms. Kouchki's answer, which was intercepted by the Haganah, was, Mafish, I have not any. He lied, for in fact he had plenty but he was not about to share them. Not every aspect of Operation Nachshon, whose mission was to free the way to Jerusalem and supply it, was successful. But a convoy of 250 trucks laden with supplies was able to get into Jerusalem, bringing the first supplies in two weeks. The reef supplies enabled Jerusalem's Jewish population to hold out for the next few weeks. In April of 1948, the Arabs fought for two weeks to regain control of the Tel Aviv-Jerusalem Highway, focusing their attack on the Jewish force that had captured Castel that dominated the road on the eastern end. The Arab commander, indeed the most important Arab commander, was Abdul Qadr al-Husseini, which makes him a cousin of the Mufti, Khajamin al-Husseini, whom we have detailed at length in earlier episodes. Khajamin al-Husseini was a Nazi whose naked evilness and desire to destroy the Jewish people had virtually no peer even among the Nazis. He never succeeded in exterminating according to his plan, but his record is still rather appalling. He was the one who invented the fiction that the Jews are trying to take over Al-Aqsa, a surefire recipe to inflame Arab passions, which consistently results in expressions in the form of pogroms, murder, mayhem, looting, and mass destruction. Note that the October 7 massacre was labeled by Hamas Al-Aqsa Flood, a slaughter supposedly in reaction to Jews attempting to take over the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It is a total fiction, but a narrative that consistently inflames Arabs and motivates them to seek Jewish blood. You cannot get more contemporaneous than this communique by Hamas Qassam commander Mohammed Def, fearing for his life, of course, is in safety, trying to shield himself from the long arm of Israel and is 700 miles away from Gaza Strip and Doha, Qatar. Here is his and Hamas's mission statement broadcast on Al Jazeera. The time has come to draw the line, for the enemy to understand their time is up and they can't keep going without consequences. We are announcing an operation called Al-Aqsa Floods. In the first part of it, 5,000 rockets have been fired. It is the time to unite all the Arab and Islamic powers to overthrow the Israeli occupation. The call to rally behind Al-Aqsa can quickly turn Arabs into murderous terrorists. Master terrorist Khaj Amin al-Husseini made it a family tradition and conveyed all of his venom to his nephew, Yasser Arafat, who has brought terror to an all-new level that everyone alive on this planet suffers from in one way or another. Here is a super brief synopsis. In order to report on Arafat's history objectively, one must include his decades-long involvement in terror, his goal of destroying Israel, and his siphoning of hundreds of millions of dollars from money donated to help the Palestinian people that went instead into his own private accounts. Yasser Arafat is known to many as the father of modern terrorism. 
Here are the key events in Yasser Arafat's terrorist career, only up to the year 2003, when the list of terrorist attacks and slaying becomes so plentiful that reading it becomes monotonous and, frankly, ineffective. What a legacy. Father of terror, skyjackings, targeting innocent civilians. I still remember when you could get onto a plane the way you would get onto a bus, without lengthy delays and costly inspections. In January 1st, 1965, he began the new year, where Fatah fails its first attempted attack within Israel, the bombing of the national water carrier. July 5th, 1965, a Fatah cell plants explosives in Mitzpeh Masua, near Beit Kuvrin, and on the railroad tracks to Jerusalem near Kafir Batir. From 1965 to 1967, numerous Fatah bomb attacks target Israeli villages, water pipes, railroads, homes were destroyed, and Israelis were murdered. On February 21, 1970, Swiss Air Flight 330, bound for Tel Aviv, was bombed in mid-flight by PLO terrorists, murdering 47 people on board. May 8, 1970, PLO terrorists attack an Israeli school bus with bazooka fire, murdering nine pupils and teachers from Moshav Avivim. September 6, 1970, TWA, PNM, and BOAC, which later became BA, a player of airplanes were attacked and hijacked by PLO terrorists. May 1972, PFLP, part of the PLO, dispatches members of the Japanese Red Army to attack Lud Airport in Tel Aviv, murdering 27. September 1st, 5th, 1972, is the Munich Massacre. Eleven Israeli athletes are murdered at the Munich Olympics by a group calling themselves Black September, said to be an arm of Fatah, operating under Arafat's direct command. May 1st, 1973, Palestinian terrorists take over Saudi embassy in Khartoum. The next day, two Americans, including United States Ambassador to Sudan, Cleo Noel, and a Belgian, were shot and killed. The United States charged Arafat with direct complicity in these murders. April 11th, 1974, 11 people are murdered by Palestinian terrorists who attack an apartment building in Kiryat Shmona in Israel's north. May 5, 1974. PLO terrorists infiltrating from Lebanon hold children hostage in Ma'alot school. 26 people, 20 of them children, are murdered. March 1975, members of Fatah attack the Tel Aviv seafront and take hostages in the Savoy Hotel. Six are murdered. March 1978, the Coastal Road Massacre... Fatah terrorists take over a school, uh, take over a bus on the Haifa Tel Aviv Highway, and murder 21 Israelis. October 7, 1985, Italian cruise ship Achille Loro is hijacked by Palestinian terrorists. Wheelchair-bound elderly man Leon Klinghoffer was shot and thrown overboard. Intelligence reports note that instructions originate from Arafat's headquarters in Tunis. July 2000. Arafat rejects peace settlement offered by Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, offering virtually the entire thing that they ever desired, which have led to a Palestinian state. September 2000, the new Intifada is launched and continues to incite, support, and fund terrorism. July 3, 2002, Israelis intercept the Karine A, a ship loaded with 50 tons of mortars, rocket launchers, anti-tank mines, and other weapons intended for the Palestinian war against Israelis. The captain admits he was under the command of the Palestinian Authority. September 2003, 
the IMF, International Monetary Fund, states that Arafat has diverted 900 millions of public PA funds to his own account from 1995 through 2000. You will note that the operative word of all this synopsis is murder, 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 and murder. That was the goal of the Palestinian terrorists. We return. Abdul Qadir al-Husseini put himself personally in charge of the attack on the Castel. On April 9, 1948, the Jewish defenders could no longer hold out as their supplies were totally depleted. Platoon commander Shimon Al-Fasi issued an order which has become a watchword in all subsequent IDF missions. Quote, All privates will retreat, while commanders will cover their withdrawal. Al-Fasi was killed in the battle covering the retreat. Reinforcements arriving too late could only provide covering fire for the retreating soldiers. As famous historian Sir Martin Gilbert notes, the recapture of Castel was a moment of triumph for the Arab forces and could have very well marked a turning point in their military fortunes. But in a very late stage of the battle, Abdul Qadr toured the battle scene, believing that all the fighting was over. He walked right up to Haganah machine gunner, who was still at his post, whom he believed to be an Arab already in possession of the Jewish position. The Haganah fighter made quick work of the Arab military leader. The death of Abdul Qadr al-Husseini was a major psychological blow to the Arabs, from which they never recovered. The following clip is from Al Jazeera. Abdul Qadr al-Husseini was the charismatic commander of Palestinian forces in the Jerusalem area. He traveled to Damascus to plead for arms. He returned empty-handed. On the 6th of April, he wrote a letter to the Arab League, holding it responsible for leaving the Palestinians defenseless and without arms. Eventually, al-Husseini had to sell his grandfather's land to buy weapons. On April the 8th, he rushed to the defense of Al-Kastel, a village overlooking the Tel Aviv-Jerusalem road. Here, Arab fighters faced heavily armed Jewish forces. Al-Husseini was an experienced commander, having fought against the British during the 1936 Arab Revolt. He was killed in the Battle of Al-Kastel. His funeral drew a large crowd of mourners. His death was a severe blow to the Palestinian morale. After the death of Abdul Qadr, the remaining Arab leaders quarreled among themselves and headed home back to their villages. When the Haganah attempted to attack the Castel, yet another time, they met no resistance, for the post had been abandoned. Abdul al-Qadr Hosseini, in charge of the Arab forces in Jerusalem area, was the only Arab military leader that was charismatic and able to effectively unite his forces. It was hundreds of his men who ambushed a caravan of vehicles making their way to Adassa Hospital at Mount Scopus. They trapped two buses in the convoy, and Haganah defenders fought valiantly to keep the attackers at bay as Haganah headquarters pleaded to the British to intervene. Yet the British did not arrive until six hours later, by which point it was too late. Seventy-eight Jewish teachers, doctors, nurses, and patients were massacred. Many of them burned alive in what was known as the Hadassah Medical Convoy Massacre. Only 30 bodies remained. Of the others, nothing remained but ash. The Hadassah Hospital Mount Scopus that had been treating Jews and Arabs alike since its opening day years earlier was closed. Would not be the, oh, it would not be opened again till after the Six-Day War in 1967. Among those murdered in this massacre was Dr. Chaim Yasky, 
an ophthalmologist and director of the Hadassah Medical Organization. His pioneering work on the scourge of trachoma had saved the eyesight of tens of thousands of Arabs. Here's a description of what occurred selecting from Hadassah's centennial convention in Israel in October 2012. It happened on Tuesday, April 13, 1948. The convoy to Mount Scopus that day was made up of two armored cars, two ambulances, two buses, and three supply trucks. Dr. Yasky was in the first ambulance. He sat exposed in the front. The road was suspiciously quiet. Even the Arab grocery store on the corner was closed. All of a sudden, there was a huge explosion. A mine went off, creating a deep ditch. The first car slid into it. That's how it all started. Bullets came through the windows like hail. There was constant shooting and yelling. The British knew but did nothing. Dr. Yasky turned and said goodbye. A few minutes later, he was hit by a bullet and fell out of the ambulance. It felt like it went on forever. At first, we kept them from approaching with a few pistols we had. But then they started throwing grenades and flaming gas rags, and the buses went up in flames. The Hadassah convoy massacre took place on April 13, 1948, one month before the declaration of the State of Israel. This remains the single largest terrorist attack in the history of the modern state. 78 doctors, nurses, patients, staff, and students were slaughtered in the massacre. May their memories be for a blessing. So despite the Arab superiority in numbers and ammunition, from among all those tens of millions, they could not mine leaders. In this regard, the Jews had the upper hand. On the Arab side, there is only one leader of significance that we have described, al-Husseini, who was killed rather early in the war. But on the Jewish side, there was a cadre of vastly talented leaders, among them Yigal Yadin, Yigal Alon, Moshe Dayan, Yitzhak Rabin. The number one advantage for the Jewish side was the nature of the Jewish society and who emerged from that society. Gosh, our time has lapsed, so uh, we'll continue, of course, in two weeks' time. Thanks to all the listeners who tell me how much they enjoy our episodes and learn so much from them. This is surely an indication for all the long hours of preparation. Please head over to the website, hanochteller.com, www.hanochteller.com. You'll find a special on my newly released book, If Not Higher. Listeners of Teller from Jerusalem always enjoy an extra discount on all products. To hear the first installment on the subject of the book, listen to Season 2, Episode 35. Lastly, thanks, as always, to our very intelligent sound engineer, Howard Tachita Felsen. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. 